The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Local farmers are still assessing and attempting to mitigate damage due to last year's heavy rains. We visit one area walnut grower to find out what he's doing to ensure a healthy walnut crop for this year. More and more California ag officials are concerned about the ramifications of the Trump administration's proposed tariffs and the blowback that California's farmers especially will have to endure. Plus, a report on 2018's almond problems, the outlook for the state's vegetable crops, the continuing reality soap opera, All My Delta Tunnels, and the story of one local award-winning olive oil producer. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Sacramento County farmer Ken Onito lost 15 acres of walnut trees to levy seepage in the wake of winter storms that also caused a lot of flooding. Onito told the California Farm Bureau Federation about the years of work ahead to bring the acreage back into production. Last year we were here in, in February, we had some flood water here about three feet deep in these trees and we were able to pump that water out. Um, subsequently, we had some seepage water coming from the levee to our east through the months of March, April, and May, which drowned our 15 acres of walnuts here that were all in, in production. University research says it's best to wait one year, let the, let the ground rest and plant either sedan or safflower. I chose to plant safflower on the property. Trees are ordered to go in next January or February of 19 to replace what I've lost. In the meantime, I will be working on putting in a, an interceptor drain along the levee to make sure that, that, that I don't get water intrusion into my orchard again, so my orchard is, is, will, will be healthy for its life. I don't want to invest all the money in that have this happen again. Hopefully in eight or nine years, I will have a complete orchard back again. Sacramento Valley walnut growers have been having a tough time with walnuts this year. 2017 brought unprecedented high and fluctuating water flows throughout the Sacramento and Feather River basins, damaging walnut orchards from direct flooding, as well as indirectly via under-levee seepage. As a result, many walnut trees had a long exposure to waterlogged conditions through the winter and spring. The walnut experts at the University of California Cooperative Extension have some tips for walnut growers who may have had flooded orchards. One of the biggest dangers is from aerial photophora. They advocate a wait-and-see approach, keeping trees as long as they're economically productive. Trees that have been girdled or nearly girdled with photophora may not survive, but some scion cankers may stop or die out when it gets warmer. In previous research, phosphonate, also known as phosphite treatments, were found to suppress canker expansion caused by photophora. It's advisable to replace trees killed by photophora with clonal paradox RX1 rootstock, which offers some resistance to the pathogen. For trees affected by water logging, consider topping trees with vigorous shoot growth on lower limbs. From grower experience, these trees often recover by producing new shoot growth, and it's usually obvious within the season if a top tree will respond and grow or not. In contrast, trees that have very little new shoot growth often don't survive the season after flooding, so topping is unlikely to promote tree survival. Where trees have been topped or have new shoot growth, apply nitrogen fertilizer in small amounts during May through early August when roots are active. Top trees will have no crop until the following year, so little nitrogen is being removed this season. Notable speakers gathered recently in a campo at the Lang Twins Family Winery to voice their concerns over the Chinese tariffs. 
Among the attendees was California Secretary of Food and Agriculture Karen Ross, the California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson, and other notable farmers in the area who attended the event hosted by the interest group Farmers for Free Trade. And, of course, wine was a major topic of conversation there. The 15% additional tariff on wine has already resulted in one order from Lang Twins Winery getting canceled and another put on hold while price negotiations occur. That according to the Western Farm Press. Also speaking at the event was a representative of the United States apple industry. Jeff Colombini grows apples near Lodi along with other crops, and he spoke about the importance of maintaining the North America Free Trade Agreement as well as duty-free access to the Chinese market. Under the agreement, he told the gathering, the apple industry has quadrupled its exports to Mexico and doubled its exports to Canada with combined purchases of nearly $450 million a year. Colombini also spoke about the impact of China's retaliatory tariffs on agricultural commodities, including a 15% tariff on U.S. apples. He told the gathering that there's a tremendous concern as China has significant growth potential because it doesn't grow the many apple varieties that we grow here, and Chinese consumers are excited to experience those unique taste profiles. The U.S. apple industry has achieved full access to the Chinese market. That began in 2015. Since then, apple exports have grown to 2.5 million boxes per year. China is now the apple industry's sixth largest export market. Under the Trade Promotion Authority rules, Congress must have a signed trade agreement for six to eight months before it can vote to ratify it. So in order for a NAFTA agreement to be voted on before the midterm elections, the agreement would have to be concluded and given to Congress by this Friday. And reportedly there are not any top-level talks scheduled for this week. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue gave reporters an update late Monday. The NAFTA, while many of the agreements have been in principle decided, I think it hadn't been concluded yet, still a good bit of work to do, but we're hopeful and optimistic it'll be completed very soon. However, it may not be this week since U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer is on his way to China for trade talks there. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Yes, once again, it's time for the latest chapter of the never-ending real-life soap opera, All My Delta Tunnels. The Delta Tunnels, of course, is Governor Brown's proposed California water fix project. Twin 40-foot diameter tunnels buried 150 feet beneath the Sacramento River that would transport water 35 miles from near Cortland here in Sacramento County down to the pumping plants outside of the San Joaquin County city of Tracy. Proponents say the Delta Tunnels would give Central and Southern California cities and farms a more reliable water supply. However, it's a project that has lots of local environmentalists, farmers, and residents in opposition for a myriad of reasons, including threats to Delta water quality, the high costs, the loss of farmland, and the rumored possibility of Southern California grabbing more of Northern California's water. Well, when we last left you, you may recall that Southern California's huge metropolitan water district, which delivers water to 20 million customers in Southern California, was ready to foot a massive portion of the construction costs, over $10 billion of the estimated costs of $16 billion. MWD was urging other water districts to contribute to the costs or possibly face having to purchase more expensive water from MWD when the project is up and running, which isn't expected for another 15 years. By the way, the project has yet to dig up its first pile of soil and won't be until all the ongoing legal battles have been resolved. Meanwhile, the Santa Clara Water District, which serves 2 million customers in the San Francisco Bay Area, 
changed their mind. Last October, the district voted not to contribute funds to the project unless it was scaled down to one tunnel, not two. Although the project was not reduced in size, the Santa Clara Water District held a meeting last week to vote on allowing funding for the full project anyway to the tune of $650 million, possibly raising customers' monthly water costs there by more than $10 a month. So why did the Santa Clara Water District change their mind? Well, here's an interesting coincidence. The California Water Commission, which had said no to the Santa Clara Water District's February $485 million proposal for funding for a new dam which would serve that water district, they changed their mind a few weeks ago and recommended full funding for the Pacheco Dam. Well, what about the Santa Clara Water District and that meeting last week? What happened? After a five-hour meeting, packed with people, many of whom were opposed to the Delta Tunnels project, the district put off a vote until next week, ostensibly for the members to review the hundreds of pages of staff reports and draft contracts, some of which were presented to the board only 24 hours earlier by Santa Clara Water District staff members who were urging them to approve the plans. That according to the San Jose Mercury News. Well, Governor Brown has only eight months left in his term to try and wrap up approval for his Delta Tunnels plan, but opponents know the project won't leave town when he leaves Sacramento, even though none of his potential successors have indicated strong support for the two-tunnel plan. And as always, especially in an election year, follow the money. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Rice planting commenced last week for some growers. Others continue to prep the fields for planting. Alfalfa fields continue to mature and are starting to be harvested. Growers in Sacramento County had their first cut of alfalfa for the season. Safflower and sunflower fields were planted and began to emerge. Corn was planted as weather and soil conditions permit. Winter wheat and oats were cut, dried, and baled. After a late start this year due to threats of cold weather, the cotton planting is continuing and is quickly progressing. Vineyards continue to leaf out and are progressing into the early stages of flowering. Leaf removal was ongoing in some vineyards. Stone fruit orchards continued to leaf out as the bloom drew to a close. Immature fruit on early stone fruit varieties are being thinned. New orchards are being planted. Cherries are sizing well. Some were beginning to show color. Pomegranates, persimmons, olives, and kiwis were blooming. The harvest of late variety navel oranges is ongoing with some grading issues. Seedless tangerine groves remain netted for the bloom. Lemons continue to be harvested. Some citrus trees are being planted. Walnut and pistachio bloom is ongoing. Almonds are developing well despite some reports of a light crop. Irrigation began in some locales. Irrigation system repair and maintenance continues. Pesticide and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control is underway. In the vegetable fields, broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, and lettuce continue progressing well in Monterey County. Good weather promoted strawberry and spinach production. Greenhouse vegetables and strawberries continue to be harvested in Tulare County. Squash and cucumber seedlings are thriving in the San Joaquin Valley. Squash and tomato planting is beginning in Yolo and Sacramento counties. Onions in Sutter County are reported to be near bloom. Field preparations were ongoing for summer vegetable field planting. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was beginning to dry out in locations with south or west-facing slopes. Sheep grazed on retired cropland. Bees were active in citrus and olive groves. 
If you're looking for the beauty of California, it's hard to overlook the beautiful foothills this time of year and all that green pasture land. Calaveras County rancher Michael David Fisher talks about how recent spring rains have improved pasture conditions, growing lush grasses on the range for his grazing cattle. He had a recent chat with the California Farm Bureau Federation about the beauty of the land right now. Yeah, I'm uh, Michael David Fisher. I'm here in uh, Paloma, California. Uh, near Valley Springs and uh, the feed conditions here this year uh, are looking pretty good uh, with the March and April rains that we've had. Uh, February, beginning of February, we were a little concerned. The grass level was way down. The cattle were kind of getting ahead of the grass. But uh, since that time, as you can see, the, the cattle have done really well. Uh, these are my first calf heifers in this field and uh, this has had it grazed fairly well and you can see there's still a lot of feed and abundance growing here. So we're, uh, we're in fairly good shape as long as the market holds for us. Uh, these calves in this field will be marketed uh, around June 9th. And as Fisher alluded to, there are some problems brewing out on the range. The USDA's Gary Crawford has the details. The second highest April 1st cattle feedlot inventory ever. That's what the USDA is reporting at 11.7 million head as of April 1st, up 7% from a year ago. In that 11.7 million inventory, more heifers, 4.2 million, up 14% from a year ago. USDA livestock analyst Shay O'Shagham says heifers are 35.7% of the entire inventory, 2% more than a year ago. That percentage of heifers on feed may be a reflection of some potential slowing in the expansion of the breeding herd. And for two good reasons. Dry conditions, relatively weak cattle prices going forward, which obviously works its way back down the chain to uh, feeder calf prices. Which have been running here recently about $145 a hundredweight down from 148 a year ago. We do expect to see those prices even come down further as we move into the into the mid part of the year, probably averaging in the high 130s during the third quarter. Which could make for more reasons to slow the herd expansion, but looking at the current situation for the industry as far as margins. It starts with the price you can get for the fed cattle and, and works its way backward. Right now we're looking at fed cattle prices uh, in the five areas that we normally track for steers of about $121. A year ago we were in the high $120 to $130 range this time of year. Uh, we do expect to see prices coming down uh, probably to somewhere around $110 a third quarter average. With an average price for the year probably around 117 It was 122 a year ago. This is certainly helping packers. Packer margins are actually counter-seasonally relatively strong. And normally this would be a period of time when the demand for wholesale choice cuts of beef tends to not be as strong just ahead of the period when retailers begin to buy for grilling season, but we are seeing some of those prices remaining relatively strong. Meanwhile, at the feedlots, Shale Shagam says those margins have been positive so far this year, but a lot of cattle were placed earlier in the year. The inventory's up to very high levels, as you heard. But obviously, as they begin to have to market some of these fed cattle at lower prices in the middle part of the year, their returns are likely going to be squeezed. they got to keep them moving out. So really, all of this seems to spell, if not a reversal of the herd expansion, at least a slowdown. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Your eyes are not deceiving you. Almond acreage is up. According to the National Agricultural Statistics Service, California's almond acreage is at 1.3 million acres. 
That's up 7% from the 1.24 million acres that existed in 2016. Nonpareil continues to be the leading variety, followed by Monterey, Butte, Carmel, and Padre. The counties that lead the way in almond production in California, Kern, Fresno, Stanislaw, Merced, and Madera. They account for 73% of the total bearing almond acreage in the state. The increases come despite trees being removed from some 35,000 acres within the past year. Of this number, a significant amount of acreage was harvested last fall before being pushed out. All those almonds mean there's a lot of holes and shells left over. More than two pounds of holes and shells are produced for each pound of almond kernels from California's orchards. These co-products have historically been used as livestock bedding or dairy feed, but recently announced almond board research initiatives are identifying ways to increase their uses and make them more attractive to other industries. Future uses could include strengthening recycled plastic as well as using insect larvae for poultry feed. What are some of the pest problems facing almonds this year? Blue Diamond almond growers have noted the presence of oblique banded leaf rollers in several almond orchards. This insect feeds on the small nutlets immediately after petal fall and can quietly inflict significant damage in that the damaged nutlets fall with the unfertilized and aborted nutlets, effectively hiding the level of damage. Growers are also reporting sporadic finds of leaf-footed plant bug, which pierces the nuts during its feeding and can inflict significant losses. Observers have also noted populations of web-spinning mites in almonds in the San Joaquin Valley. Research by the University of California has shown that six-spotted thrips, a very small predator insect present within the orchards, can effectively control mite populations if allowed to develop. Over the coming weeks, growers will continue to monitor their orchards for the biggest almond pest issue, navel orange worm populations. Pheromone traps to monitor male moth populations and egg traps used to monitor egg laying by females will be combined with pheromone releases designed to disrupt mating and reduce populations within the orchards. All are fully aware of the damage they suffered in the 2017 crop, and they'll be working to mitigate impacts to the crop this year. When it comes to making trade agreements, President Trump has said that if he had a choice between a deal made with several countries at a time or a deal made between the U.S. and one other country, he prefers... Fair bilateral trade deals. Bilateral. But the Trade Council to Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says there are pros and cons to both multi- and bilateral negotiations. Jason Haifmeister told reporters in Washington that one-on-one -on -one negotiations can be very effective in certain situations. A lot of times it's, it's easier for us to employ leverage. If it's just the mighty United States, the most attractive commercial market for other countries to try and enter, if we bring that to the table and we're sitting with another country, we can say, listen, we're going to dictate the terms here. If you want to deal with us, this is going to be the framework. And that can work. Particularly when we're talking to smaller countries who have fewer options, who may be more desperate for a deal. However, Haifmeister says... It gets a little trickier when you talk to other big countries. Yes, it does. For example, he says several years ago, he was involved in the negotiations involving China becoming a member of the World Trade Organization. And we were trying to close the deal out, and China sent over a very aggressive proposal to us and said, if you want to talk about it, you have to come to China. And I remember our chief negotiator saying, ah, oh, these Chinese, they drive me crazy. They treat us like we treat other countries. <laughs> uh, so the bigger, more economically powerful the other nation is, the harder it is to get things you want in a one-on-one -on -one situation. So Haifmeister says there are some benefits to working on multilateral agreements. Obviously, one of those is that you're getting an end product multiplied several times. When we did a Central America free trade agreement, we knocked out five countries all in one deal. It just took us one year. 
you know, it was complicated, but we had to deal all of a sudden with a whole region. Also, good things can sometimes happen in a multilateral situation because of all of the workings among and between the various participants. So going back to when the U.S. was working with 11 countries on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We negotiated with Japan, a country that's not eager to open its market to imports. But what they saw with the Trans-Pacific Partnership was not just a deal with the United States, but they are also getting deals with Canada and Mexico and Vietnam and Australia and Malaysia and all these other countries. And so I think that helped us leverage more out of Japan. So there can be advantages to multilateral agreements. Perhaps that's why President Trump is continuing the NAFTA negotiations and has not totally ruled out maybe coming back into TPP, multilateral negotiations. But I like bilateral better. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. March rains kept many Californians out of their gardens. That has meant a surge of business this month at plant nurseries. Nursery operators say development of some plants has been slowed by the inconsistent winter and spring weather, but that demand has been good, especially for plants that can thrive on less water. One nursery operator says he's seen demand for succulents grow from 2% of his inventory to 30%. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Probably the biggest pest almond growers in California now face is navel orange worm. Rob Kiss is a customer business advisor for Bear Crop Science here in California. He has some tips for controlling navel orange worm. Field sanitation, field sanitation, field sanitation. Get those mummies off. Mummies are where they live. When you eliminate their homes, you eliminate the populations, or at least you knock them down. That's the best, most efficacious thing you can do to help control navel orangeworm. Get the mummies out of the trees. The problem is if it's too dry, it's difficult to shake them off. Then once we get them down, we've got to get them destroyed, mashed up, and eliminated from the field. Who's the number one ice cream producing state in the United States? Why, of course, it's California. And the global ice cream market is estimated to reach $78 billion by 2025. That according to a new report. The California Farm Bureau Federation reports that demand for premium products, innovative flavors, lactose-free options, and impulse purchases, as well as increased consumption in the Asia-Pacific region, is expected to drive ice cream growth at 4.1% annually. China is an important market for U.S. ag products, but it's not the only one. Trade is on everyone's mind. We're trying to open uh, new markets. That was Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue testifying to the Senate Ag Committee. We shouldn't be just depending on China anyway, regardless. We've got to depend on those other populations, growing populations in Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, the Vietnams, the Philippines, in the Indo-Pacific region. So uh, it's really... Uh, an effort to try to continue to build those. He pointed to the work of the man he calls USDA's chief salesman. The Undersecretary for Trade, Ted McKinney, is on the the worldwide tour, not just the domestic tour, all around knocking on doors in India and in the Indo-Pacific region as well as South America. The secretary pointed to several USDA programs that have helped American ag producers expand their export sales. One of the things that you all did in the omnibus was helpful was the MAP program, a market access program. These deal with collaborators in various industries. Many times they're matching these from one-to-one to 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 seven-to-one over uh, in-country types of representatives to help keep the U.S. products in the forefront all the time. He also 
appointed to the Market Development Program. Both of those are very helpful as we, uh, as we try to build up capacity and the opportunity to uh, promote uh, U.S. products uh, around the world. He says USDA is doing the best it can with what it has. Many people feel like we're still at a disadvantage that other countries are doing more, but uh, we're utilizing those funds and leveraging them as much as possible. Meanwhile, he also stressed how important it is that agriculture's voice is heard at the highest levels in U.S. trade talks. I've been a principal at the trade discussions, uh, really weekly trade meetings that have been conducted throughout the last summer of 17, the fall, and even into now regarding our strategies. I've been in touch on a regular basis, probably weekly, if not more often at that, with uh, Ambassador Lighthizer. He adds that he understands why the administration is concerned with job losses in industries like cars and steel. We're trying to keep them mindful of the fact of the ag manufacturing jobs that are here. You know, you can export a factory, you can't export a farm. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. As members of Congress are back in their home states this week on recess, the American Farm Bureau Federation says now is the time to tell lawmakers the importance of passing the farm bill. AFBF Director of Grassroots Program Development Randy Dwyer says lawmakers are out in their respective districts this week looking to hear from farmers and ranchers. This week is Farm Bill Action Week, and we're asking farmers and ranchers across the country to take a minute and to contact their legislators about the farm bill. It's a great opportunity to spend a little bit of time time reaching out and letting your legislators know that the Farm Bill is extremely important. The House Agriculture Committee sent its version of the Farm Bill to the full House for consideration in late April. The House could consider the bill within the next three weeks. Dwyer says farmers and ranchers need to let Congress know the importance of keeping the bill moving forward. Farm Bureau members across the country need to let their legislators know that they need to support the Farm Bill. It is extremely important for rural America that this Farm Bill gets enacted. The opportunity is now to reach out because there's a vote coming up in a couple of weeks in the House of Representatives. Dwyer is encouraging farmers and ranchers to call, email, or even use social media to make their voice heard by legislators. There are several ways that our Farm Bureau members can reach out to the legislators this week. One of them is going online, and that's going to fb.org slash advocacy. There, they can send an email to their legislators. It's quick, it's simple, and it makes a big impact back in the congressional office. Michael Clements, Washington. The USDA is allocating $14.8 million to California. It's part of its efforts to strengthen the nation's infrastructure for pest detection and surveillance, as well as identification, threat mitigation, and a safeguard nursery production systems. These funds will support projects covering a range of plant health and pest mitigation activities here in California, including $4.3 million to survey for harmful exotic fruit fly populations in the state, as well as $3.5 million to support the activities of California's agricultural detector dog teams that are searching for harmful exotic plant pests and packages at mail and express parcel delivery facilities. Secretary Perdue used an analogy to emphasize one problem he sees with public attitudes toward water. We don't think about 911 until that chest pain hits or that car crash comes. We just we take it for granted. And that's the problem with water is we take it for granted. He was speaking at a water symposium hosted by Colorado State University and live streamed by Barn Media. His immediate USDA predecessor, Tom Vilsack, asked the questions. One thing that's been not really discussed today or yesterday is the emotional stress that occurs when you have this division between rural and urban, when there is a serious issue with reference 
reference to water resources. You had to deal with that as a governor. You're now dealing with it in a number of different situations with Secretary of Agriculture. Just educate us a little bit about the importance of understanding that emotional stress and toll. Drought is probably one of the most insidious, stressful occasions that I can think of. We all face disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods. And those are more episodic. They come and they're there for a period of time and they're gone. Drought affects people emotionally in a very different way. It is so insidious and it begins slowly. It creeps up on you. And many times by the time you're aware there's a problem, you have no idea when it's going to end. And emotionally, that creates a different perspective, whether you're an agriculturalist or whether you're a municipal water manager determining how your city and community is going to water its citizens there in the future. Obviously, environmentalists and recreationalists and water people who love the streams flow are all stressed by that. When is it going to rain? I remember having been asked that so many times and no one knows. That's the stressful part of it. You have no idea when the drought will break. Secretary Purdue stressed the importance of education. You know how I learned how to use seatbelts? My children and grandchildren wouldn't let me start that car until they said, buckle up. They call me Big Buddy. Buckle up, Big Buddy. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and that was a, I think smoking is another generational type of educational thing that we, we can do. We've got to start in elementary school with water education now of its preciousness and its finiteness there and ed- educate kids in a conservation way. I think each generation is more conservation minded than the previous generation, but that's that's where that's another idea that really really helps in that way. If you had a couple of high school kids here, a couple of middle school kids, what would be the message that you would convey to them about water? I'd probably ask two smart young people if they could develop a water app that taught all their kids about water wars. They'd have water, all these wars they fight on these video games. Do a, do a video game about water wars and, uh, and, and make that and, and let that go ubiquitous like Fortnite or whatever it is they're, they're playing now. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Looking for high-performance and organic production systems, graduate students at UC Davis have planted test varieties of a number of beans. The test plots feature pinto, black, and kidney beans, plus heirloom varieties. In order to be successful in organic production, the beans have to grow fast, fast enough to outcompete weeds. The students hope to have varieties available for commercial production in about two years. California's extra virgin olive oil, it's becoming one of the state's fastest growing agricultural industries. The California State Fair recognizes this and they award the best olive oils in the Golden State at the California State Fair's extra virgin olive oil competition. Awards include best of show, best of class and best of California. They're given by comparison tasting among all the eligible entries. And the 2018 Best of Show winner for Extra Virgin Olive Oil, it's Wild Grove's Robust Blend of Newcastle. Denny Lucero is the founder of Wild Groves in Newcastle. He talks about his California olive oil and his family. The backbone of my family's new company is premium quality gourmet food with an emphasis on 100% certified extra virgin olive oil. I'm a fourth generation farmer with our history of farming olives in Corning, California. I actually have multiple generations of farming olives on both sides of my family, so I literally have olive oil running through my veins. I've been in the olive oil industry now for 12 years, and that has allowed me to taste literally thousands of extra virgin olive oils. 
And all that hard work of tasting has allowed me to become the most awarded American olive oil taster out there. One thing that Dewey Lucero is adamant about, as he explains at his website, wildgroves.com, they're dedicated to providing fresh California-grown extra virgin olive oil that's certified to be 100% authentic, the most important certification an olive oil can have by the California Olive Oil Council. With recent findings of widespread fraudulent labeling of extra virgin olive oil, particularly with imports, Lucero and many other olive oil growers here in California believe it's their mission to not only provide an authentic, certified, fresh extra virgin olive oil from California, but also educate the marketplace in the process and to have truth in labeling. It so far has been a mixed bag when it comes to both production and export forecasts for this year's vegetable and pulse crops. Now, USDA ag economists Broderick Parr and Travis Miner both say it is early in the season, yet there are enough indicators to get a first estimate. First with vegetables, with well over half the nation's annual crop coming from California. Parr says while unpredictable weather last year played a role in lower production and yields for 2018 so far, Domestically, the vegetable crops, as far as fresh and processed, given current conditions in California, being the leader in vegetable production, probably sees more growth in 2018 in production in both sectors. With weather to date in California veggie growing regions favoring increased yields for this year's crop. Turning to trade, exports of fresh vegetables are expected to rebound after reaching their lowest level in almost a decade. While Travis Miner adds, We're definitely shipping less volume in terms of process compared to last year, which also saw its lowest export totals in almost 10 years. U.S. vegetable imports, meanwhile, are expected to grow in 2018. Now, like California weather lowering vegetable production last year, the Northern Plains drought of 2017 greatly impacted production and yield of pulse crops. And while drought conditions have been alleviated in most of the region, Miner points out, Both the production and the planted area for dry beans and peas and lentils is projected down just a little bit more in 2018. With dry bean planted area forecasted down 7% year over year, and the area of dry peas and lentils planted down 20 and 28% respectively from the previous year. Miner, however, notes some bright spots in the outlook. The yields for both of these are expected to rebound a little bit. Plus, chickpea planted area is expected to increase 7% from last year. Meanwhile, early indications of 2018 show forecasted increases in dry bean and chickpea exports, while dry pea and lentil exports are down so far year over year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Senate Commerce Committee recently passed the Precision Agriculture Connectivity Act of 2018. The American Farm Bureau Federation says it's a major step in delivering broadband service to rural America. Chad Smith has more. The Precision Agriculture Connectivity Act of 2018 is designed to deliver broadband service, which is crucial for operating today's farming equipment. R.J. Carney, Senior Director of Congressional Relations at American Farm Bureau Federation, says the legislation would increase farmers' efficiency in producing the world's most affordable food supply. Precision agriculture allows farmers to be more efficient, economical and environmentally friendly. It would create a task force and it'll bring together U.S. Department of Agriculture, Federal Communications Commission, and also private and public stakeholders to focus on the need of broadband connectivity in cropland and ranch lands. Carney says Wall Street businesses would never be asked 
to operate without broadband connectivity. Farmers and ranchers work outdoors and they need broadband connectivity to do their jobs effectively. Carney says the task force the legislation creates will help close gaps in connectivity between rural and urban areas. This task force is going to propose policy recommendations to help promote the deployment of fixed and mobile broadband across 95% of cropland and ranch land in the United States by 2025. There's currently no data available to know how much cropland and ranch land currently has broadband connectivity. So that's what this task force will help focus its attention on. Where are the gaps? Carney says Farm Bureau is looking to identify legislative next steps to move the Precision Agriculture Connectivity Act forward. The hope is to find a bill that this might be attached to. That may be the FCC reauthorization bill. That could also be within the Senate Farm Bill when those discussions occur. So we're looking for a vehicle that might be able to attach the Precision Agricultural Connectivity Act in the Senate. Chad Smith, Washington. Yes, back in 1980, when this song was a hit, the government put out its first version of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. It was a big deal. I remember covering the press conference heralding the release of the guidelines, hearing then Agriculture Secretary Bob Berglund telling reporters... We are simply trying to advise people on how to stay healthy uh, through a proper diet. The guidelines advised basically taking in less fat, salt, and sugar, more whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. The guidelines were issued with such hope that at last we would listen and start to reverse our eating patterns, which were more fat, salt, and sugar, not many whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. That was 38 years ago. Now, new versions of the basic guidelines have come out every five years. The government has tried various ways to convey the guidelines from pyramids to plates, but the last group of experts to help revise the guidelines back in 2014 told us straight out. The U.S. population is nowhere near to consuming the the USDA food pattern that we've been talking about. The vast majority of the U.S. population does not meet recommended intakes for fruit, vegetables, whole grains and dairy and food groups. These conditions are not new. They've persisted for 25 years or more. And according to a new study, the guideline advice has not changed that much. Eat a variety of foods, a lot of vegetables, a lot of whole grains, limit certain things, and we just aren't able to do it. Or are unwilling. This from Agriculture Department researcher Lisa Mancino. The study involves looking at the food buying during a week's time of over 4,800 households across the country, all incomes, all situations. Now, there is what is called a healthy eating index that's used by nutritionists and others, a way to score a person's diet. The scale is from zero, very bad, to 100 being perfection. Where do you think the average American scores on this index? Most studies, and this one included, find that we're getting about a 50 three out of 100. Whoa, imagine you or your kid coming home with a 50 on the report card, which uh, of course anything below 75 or 70 is considered a big F. And yet when it comes to healthy eating? 53 out of 100. And most of us already know why. Basically we're getting dinged for eating too few of the foods that we're encouraged to eat, like fruits, whole fruits, dark green vegetables, whole grains. And we are getting dinged for getting too much of the foods that we're supposed to eat in moderation, like salts and added sugars and alcohol and saturated fats and yummy things like that. Uh, Yummy things. Now, why are the things bad for us so yummy good? Anyway, uh, Lisa's study is trying to get at other causes or factors that might affect people's diet choices and diet quality. Is it they just don't have access to good food? Is it that there are a lot of food away from home options getting in the way of them? getting to the grocery store? Are the prices for healthy food higher? Next time, we'll take a look at some of those factors and see how they play out, and we'll... Tell it like 
Yeah, yes, all right, we'll, we'll tell him. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Saying that their work could lead to increases in agricultural water efficiencies, scientists announced recently they've been able to regulate a plant protein that controls photosynthesis. The team from UC Berkeley says increasing the protein in plants allows the plants to grow more efficiently and thrive on 25% less water. And better yet, researchers say the plants use less water without significantly sacrificing yield. The Departments of Agriculture and Health and Human Services are announcing a new step in their joint development process for the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. For the first time before our call for nominations for the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, USDA and HHS are posting for public comment topics and supporting questions for the scientific review that will support our development of the next edition of the DGA. These topics and questions are located on dietaryguidelines.gov. That was Brandon Lips, USDA's Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, and consumer services. The two agencies are working on dietary guidelines that will cover 2020 to 2025. The topics and supporting scientific questions are organized by life stage, from birth to 24 months through older adulthood. Birth to 24 months is a new focus of this edition. The goal is to have the new dietary guidelines ready to release by the end of 2020. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.